Hey there, Grace and peace to all of you. It's Captain Roger from the Grass Valley Corps of the Salvation Army here in beautiful Grass Valley, California. Thank you for joining us this morning for our worship and study time. We are on the first official week of Advent, and we are covering the story, the real story of Christmas. In fact, let's start this morning by just telling you a familiar story. All right, you're going you're gonna to have heard this one a million times, mostly. Once there was a young girl, newly engaged, who received a visit from an angel who told her she was God's chosen mother of the long-awaited Messiah. Her soon-to-be husband was distressed when he realized his fiancée was pregnant, but God, in a vision, told him she hadn't been unfaithful, so the formal marriage went ahead. And then, in the last days of her miraculous pregnancy, that couple was suddenly compelled to journey ninety miles to another town. Joseph, the husband, put Mary, the girl, on a donkey, and the two headed out alone into the desert on an epic trek to Bethlehem. Just as they arrived, Mary went into labor, and finding that there was nowhere available for them to stay in town, they found space in a nearby cave where animals were kept. Joseph went to find a midwife who could come and help with the birth, but in his absence, Mary delivered the child alone. She lay the babe into a dirty feed trough, putting down a bed of straw and wrapping him in strips of cloth. Snow gently coated the outside world while the baby rested quietly in his improvised cradle. Cows and sheep came to nuzzle at the infant, and at some point a little boy arrived to play his drum for this newborn savior. Pa-rumpa-pum-pum. Ah, it's a beautiful and moving story, isn't it? I hate to break it to you, but there is very little in this traditional Christmas tale that is related to the history recorded in the scripture or the reality of people in first century Palestine. In fact, most of what we think of as the Christmas story comes from a novel that was written about 150 to 200 years after Jesus was born. Well, I say novel. It was a novel by ancient standards. It's, it's about 12 pages long. And it is a rollicking good story. You should go look this up. Um, it, it includes all kinds of fascinating plot twists, like how Mary's mother gave birth to her only child in her old age, and that it was a miraculous pregnancy all on its own. And how Mary was then raised in the temple and fed by angels. In the midwife, when she finally got there, she saw the baby Jesus and said, well, Mary couldn't possibly be a virgin. And so she checked, but then was immediately stricken with leprosy. Don't, don't worry, though. The infant Jesus reached out his hand and touched her, at which point she was instantly healed and willing to declare that Mary was a virgin after all. But, like I said, that is all fiction. And no matter how neat some parts of the made-up story are, the real story is so much better. It's just that getting to that real story can be tricky. It happened a long time ago. The Bible doesn't give us as many details about the birth of Jesus as we would like. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that false stories have taken root and grown up how they did. Biographers back then just didn't include a lot of details about the early lives of their subjects. They figured the important stuff is what people did as adults. The fact that two of Jesus' biographers felt the need to include stories about his birth tells us how amazing they found it to be. Now, each of those writers, they included parts of the story that share the focus of their gospel. <coughs> Excuse me. Share the focus of their gospel. For Matthew, that's things which helped show Jesus as the promised Jewish Messiah. For Luke, it's things that present Jesus as God entering into the flesh of human life. 
Matthew was a religious Jew. Luke was a Greek doctor and a citizen of Rome. And they each told us about the part of the birth of Jesus that interested them. Luke's story is laid out in chapter 2 of his book. And uh, if you'll all flip to that section of your Bible, you'll be able to better follow along and make sure that I don't lead you astray. All right. I'll be reading from the uh, New Living Translation this morning, at least mostly. I'll let you know when I I stray, as it were. Uh, We're going to start today, Luke chapter 2, at verse 1. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Augustus, he liked to count people. He set up a tax system based on how many people lived in an area instead of charging them whatever the whim of the Senate decreed. He ordered a number of these censuses while he was emperor. Uh, Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. I've got to tell you, some people object to this statement. Uh, And here's why. We, We know that Jesus was born somewhere between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C., And we have solid records of Quirinius being the political governor of Syria from 6 to 12 A.D. And we know that he ordered a census in 6 or 7 A.D. that caused this big stir in a small rebellion in Israel. And so some people are like, well, the census was in here and it was 12 years later and, you know, it gets confusing. Now, uh, here's the thing. People just don't get excited about making extra copies of tax histories. And most documents from Roman days decay to dust after a few centuries. So the best that we've been able to do is to rely on historians from the 1st and 2nd centuries whose records have remained. People who claim to have seen the original records, and then we can either prove or disprove their reliability based on scraps of evidence that we have found over the years. Luke i got to tell you, he's the gospel writer who provides the most verifiable details. His accuracy has been questioned a few times over the centuries, but in every point when evidence is found, he's always been shown to be accurate. In the case of Quirinius, it turns out that he was the military governor in this region during the time that Luke indicated, and records have been found that show that there were censuses in the region during that time. Now, Luke... He was a careful and accurate historian. That's why I love to quote from his book so much. Let's go back to doing that. Luke chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 tell us, All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Now, i got to tell you again, there, there are those who say that The Romans never would have required such a ridiculous trip. What possible reason could they have had to require people to return to the cities where their ancestors lived? Well, none, actually. The Romans wouldn't have any reason to require that. To those of Jewish ancestry, though, this would have been part of their tribal heritage. It would have been a way to keep claim to land that historically belonged to their family. The the view of the Jewish people at that time was that all land belongs to God, but he had given stewardship of it, or at least a portion of it, to his people. And rather than spending 20 minutes uh, going through all the details of ancient Near Eastern land ownership practices, let me just simply say, there were some complicated rules surrounding Jewish land use. What we need to know is that land was never really owned by an individual. Instead, it was divided up 
and held by the tribes and the various families in each tribe would maintain their claim to their designated parcel by working the land, by being associated with that land. Now, Joseph and Mary both had family lines that stretched back to David, the most famous king of Israel. And even though they don't seem to have held any land of their own, they still would have had a religious duty to be counted along with their own family group in order to stay in the family line. No matter how distant the relationship between them and the current owners, they still had the obligation to be counted there. Imagine if you were 16th in line of succession to the presidency. Odds are you're never going to be called on to serve as president, right? But you still need to be known and ready to serve in case something goes horribly wrong and you are called. Uh, 16th in line of succession here in the United States, by the way, is the Secretary of Veteran Affairs, Dennis McDonough. He is number 16 in line if something goes really, really, really wrong. That position uh, that he holds would usually be 17th in line, but Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm is a naturalized citizen and therefore ineligible to be president. But I'm sure you all knew that already. Now, that's why Joseph felt that he needed to be counted in Bethlehem, right? Keeps him in line, as it were. Luke chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 tell us that Joseph took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. Uh, they didn't come alone. Um, how do I know that? Well, because they're not married yet. They're just engaged. According to the laws and customs of Galilee, they weren't allowed to be alone. Chaperones were required right up to the consummation of the wedding. Also, traveling alone was not normal or safe behavior in those days. They lived near a popular highway. The trip would have taken them about a week. Simple enough to join a caravan or to travel with a family who also needed to go. And, and, and take note that it is while they were there that the time came for the baby. So we're not talking like minutes later, but days, maybe even as many as two or three months after they arrived in Bethlehem before the baby was born. And there is a very good reason for that. Ancient peoples may not have had the technology that we do. They may not have had that full understanding of what's going on in the womb that we like to pretend we have. But they were far from stupid. This was not the first baby that had ever been born. They knew that traveling during the late stages of pregnancy was dangerous for the baby and the mother. The birth of children was revered. Risks weren't taken without serious need. The census just didn't have that kind of urgency to it. Every region had weeks or even months to report in. But we have this picture of Joseph and Mary just bundling a few things together in the last days before her due date and then tossing them and her on the back of a donkey for some long, arduous journey to a strange place without making any arrangements. It doesn't give them much credit. They wouldn't ride in with Mary in labor. They're going to have arrived early enough so that neither the baby nor Mary are in jeopardy. And they're not going to be looking for space in a cave. They will have arranged with extended family in Bethlehem for a place to stay. And then at some point after they arrived and before they were to leave for home, the time came for Jesus to be born, which he was right there in the house, not in a barn. 
At this point, some of you are looking ahead to verse 7, and you're thinking, wow, Roger is wrong. And depending on your translation, you might think that I'm very wrong. So let's look at that verse, Luke 2, verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Or um, if you use either the King James Version or the Charlie Brown Christmas Special as your primary source of scripture, you might be more familiar hearing it this way. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And right about now, there are some of you saying, See, there's no room in the inn. They put him in a manger. Score one for the innkeeper in the stable. Yeah, well, let me talk about that word inn and where that comes from. And then let's examine certain customs of the time, which would have been unthinkable for the people of Bethlehem to break. I don't think, um, I don't think any of you are going to be surprised to find that there are words that could mean more than one thing. For example, uh, the English word bank. That could mean a financial institution or a turn to one side or the other while moving. It could be the side of a river or a, a collection of electronics like a, a phone bank or a computer bank. We run across this kind of syntactic ambiguity. That's what it's called. It's called syntactic ambiguity. We run across this all the time. Think of the song lyric, I'm glad I'm a man and so is Lola. Now, does that mean Lola and I are both happy that I'm male, or does it mean that Lola is also a man? Not to get too off track, but let me offer one more. This was a newspaper headline that I saw once. Little hope given brain-damaged man. Does this mean that the brain-damaged man has little chance of recovery? Does it mean that some situation has no hope because of the involvement of a brain-damaged man? Or does it mean that a brain-damaged man has been given to a small girl named Hope? And if we have trouble figuring that out in English, how much harder do you suppose it is to translate a word like bank into a foreign language? There's a word in verse 7 that translators of the time decided should be the word in. It's the Greek word kataluma, and it has a few different meanings, one of which could be in, but that's not how Luke is using it. When Luke writes about a public lodging place, which he does elsewhere, he uses the word pandokion, which means, strangely enough, public lodging place, or inn. Now, every other place we see the word cataluma used in Matthew or in Luke, it refers to a guest room or the upper chamber of a house. Uh, even today, if you visit older style room, uh, older style rooms, older style homes in Bethlehem and, and elsewhere in the Middle East, You'll find families who live in houses that don't really have interior walls. There's like one big main room and then a stair either inside or outside that leads to an upper room that's reserved for guests. In my house, our guest room is reserved for junk that we don't know where else to put it, but which we're not comfortable throwing away. And also uh, guests. But Middle Eastern hospitality is much better than mine. And back in the day, the social norm was to share your upper room with anyone who might have need of it. More on that in just a moment. It is unthinkable that no place could be made for Joseph and Mary. 
Dr. Kenneth Bailey, a lecturer on New Testament Middle East studies, he says, In the Middle East, historical memories are long, and in such a world, a man like Joseph could have appeared in Bethlehem and told people, I'm Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi, and most homes in town would be open to him. Dr. Bailey goes on to point out that because he was from the family line of King David, Joseph really would have been welcome at any house in town. So the question becomes, why is there no room in the guest quarters? And the easiest answer is that other family members got there first. There were other out-of-town guests filling up that space. Well, why wouldn't those family members have moved for a pregnant woman? Ah, well, that's because of what we spoke about last week. Mary, she knows the child in her womb is God's doing, not created by human activity. Joseph understood and accepted that. But to the rest of the world? These two, they're not married. They're engaged. Mary's pregnancy is considered shameful. And the child she carries is thought to be a bastard, even if Joseph is claiming him. Hospitality demanded that a place be provided, but it didn't require moving other family members out of the place of honor to make room for the shame that Mary and Joseph were bringing with them. This doesn't get the couple sent to live in a barn. Even if custom had allowed it, which it did not, Sending a pregnant mother out in those circumstances would have been a horrible lapse. Babies were seen as a great blessing, even illegitimate ones. To treat them so cruelly as to send them out to be born in a barn would have brought embarrassment and shame on the entire village. One more argument against the idea of the young couple being sent out to a shed or a cave. Uh, Mary had relatives nearby who would have taken them in without question. Elizabeth and Zechariah, who had their new miracle baby, John. They lived in the hill country of Judea. Now, Bethlehem was pretty much in the center of Judea. Whatever hills Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in, they weren't far from the village. Is everyone still tracking with me? we got Mary and Joseph about to have a baby while they wait to register for the census. They're staying in the home of some extended family members in Bethlehem. And while they were not permitted to stay in the guest chamber, they were probably given space in the family living quarters near the front of the house. Which brings us to the question of the manger. I completely, 100%, wholeheartedly agree that after Mary had given birth, with the help of the women from the family and the nearby neighbors, the baby was laid in a manger. Well, of course it was. To explain this, I need to tell you a little more about the kind of houses that most of the people in Bethlehem lived in during that time. Now, even though it was one big room, the house was really a, a split level on that main level. Um, when you entered through the front door, you would be in an entry hall with a set of steps up on the right-hand side that lead up two or three feet to the rest of the room. Why the division? Well, the division is because the lower area is where families would bring small flocks or favorite animals for the night. And then you would step up into the room where the, the people belonged. So the animals didn't go up to the people area and the people used the animal area as their entry and exit. Now, why would you want animals in your house? Several reasons. First, keeps them safe from predators or thieves. Gives you easy access to animals for milk for the uh, daily meal. And it gives you access to animal dung, which was an important source of fuel. And the body heat of the animals helped warm the home during cold nights. 
Every morning after milking, the animals could be ushered out and the main room would be swept down into the stall area and the stall area would be then swept out the front door. Now, along the edge of the upper section over the entry, mangers, usually some kind of hollowed out stones, would be placed so the animals could feed at night. One of these mangers, cleaned out, lined with clean cloths, would have served as the cradle that Mary would have laid Jesus in, and she would have made her bed beside it. Joseph, of course, would have had to make his bed on the other side of the room. Remember, he and Mary were engaged. They were not fully married. So, our story then is this. Some weeks before birth, Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem to the house of a cousin of some sort. They were refused a place in the family's guest room because others were already staying there. Could room have been made? Perhaps, but the unusual circumstances around Mary's pregnancy may have made the hosts unwilling to do more than the minimum needed to provide for them. Now that minimum included places in the family's main room near the animals. Not the most comfortable of surroundings perhaps, but not bad either. Pretty much the same thing the regular family living there had for themselves day to day. Now, when Mary went into labor, the women of the house would have attended her while the men waited outside. After his birth, the baby would have been cleaned up, and the manger beside Mary's bed would have been lined with clean blankets so that this swaddled baby could be laid down in it. Whether any small children played drums for the baby while an ox and lamb kept time is still in question, though. Now, with this new understanding of the story, we can put away any foolish notion of Joseph as a husband who didn't think ahead to meet his pregnant wife's needs. There was no cold-hearted innkeeper turning on a no-vacancy sign when the couple headed up his walkway, and Mary did not deliver the baby on her own or in a cave. This is not a story of tragedy. This is a story of celebration. Jesus was born as a member of the house of David in the town known as the city of David. He was laid in a manger, sure, a manger in a warm and friendly home, not one in a cold shed out back. Now this may change the nativity scenes we're used to seeing, but I think the truth here gives us a better picture of the world that Jesus was entering. He was the creator of the cosmos, entering life as a human being faced with the same kinds of challenges and rewards we all faced as babies. I don't know about you, but I find something very comforting about knowing that my God, my Savior, really knows what it's like to be me. He experienced life firsthand, not just through observation or through other witnesses. He came and lived it himself. Can you imagine what it must be like for a being that can create universes to need to allow someone else to change his dirty diapers? For someone who's all-powerful to need to cry when he wants someone to feed him? In uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, the Apostle Paul puts this idea in dramatic language, starting with a command that we uh, must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Now perhaps we could go further and say Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to life, even life as a human infant. As we draw closer to Christmas and we celebrate this birth of Jesus, I think we need to keep the idea of the Son of God being fully human in every way close in our minds. 
This was no show. This is the greatest miracle of all time. This is God becoming flesh. But it was done in the quietest of ways, in the smallest of places. Knowing where and how he started and all that he had going for him, how much he had to struggle with right from the beginning, and then seeing what it is that Jesus became out of that. That's someone I want to follow. Now, this is not a study that lends itself naturally to an altar call, but let me offer one here anyway. For God so loved the world. That means he loves me and he loves you. He cares about us. That he gave his one and only son. Uh, He loves you and me so much he's willing to be born in questionable circumstances into a family that regarded him with a mixture of hostility and hospitality. That whosoever believes... So he loves us so much he's willing to become like us so that we could know that he really understands. Whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. He loves us so much he was willing to become human with all that entails so that we could learn to trust him and follow him into the life that he created us to live from the beginning. Now, If you need to claim that life that Jesus is offering, this is a great time to do so. There are no lines and no waiting here, right? Just present yourself to the Lord who is God, who was born so that he could live and die for us. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are welcome here. We invite you to come stay with us. I invite you to come and live in the place of highest honor in my heart, in my thoughts, in my choices, and in my actions. I give you my allegiance and ask that you help me walk the path you laid out for me before the cosmos was formed. Help me to become the creation you intended for me to be. And as we consider how you came to be with us, help us consider how we can make this world of ours a place that welcomes your eventual return by welcoming the people that you created now. Make us the Christmas story that people tell in your name. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, whoever you are, wherever you are, wherever you think you're going, remember this. You have nothing to fear. God is there. Wherever you go, God is already there. Just go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this week. See you next time.